Good morning. I am, as always, pleased and honored, um, mostly pleased, to be with you. <laughs> it's always a good Sunday to look forward to coming down here. Sometime in the middle of last week, I had this moment of panic. I was like, I think I've preached this sermon to them before. Not this one, but like I think I sent this title before. Maybe Jill remembers. I don't know. Um, but uh, anyway, I have all new content. It's not the same. <laughs> um, I, I came up with this title because there were some things I've been reading lately. It's like, oh, I, I need to talk to people about this. So um, that's what you're getting. Um, but also, um, this is a hard time. This is a hard time, and, and I think we're feeling a lot of us, maybe you're not having a hard time. Let me just say, if you're not having a hard time, yay, that's really great. And... Um, Share that, whatever, whatever it is you've got, share it with other people. But a lot of us are having a hard time right now. We're, um, we're coming out of quarantine still, I think. We, this is, we're, we're also aware that like, uh, the, this pandemic may never be over. Um, and we're trying to find our way forward, but the world has shifted around us. And how long has it been since you had children here who actually left? to go to class. This is like this everywhere, everywhere. All, all the UU churches I know, all the other churches that I'm hearing from, they're just, it's different. Church is different, the world is different, our lives are different, our jobs are different. Um, and we are as ever aware, and sometimes even more aware than we used to be of all the things in the world uh, it's, I find it really dangerous to pick up this thing and scroll through stuff. It takes me places I had not planned to go during this hour, or, you know, I don't mean this hour, I mean the hour following the time when I thought I was just going to check the weather, <laughs> you know? Um, so I'm finding that I need to be intentional about finding hope and cultivating hope and holding on to what I know is good and putting myself in the way of connecting with that good and connecting with people. And here's a few things I've run into that I thought maybe might be helpful for, for you to hear about. So I think I want, I want to start with... Um, a novel that I read, and I don't know how I found it, but after I read it, and it was long, and it was very complicated, and it was unlike any novel I've ever read, but then I keep hearing other people say, oh yeah, that's a great book, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. The title is The Ministry for the Future, and it imagines a not-too-distant future where humanity really under duress, is forced to deal with the problems that we all see coming at us now, right? Global climate change, primarily. And um, the UN creates a commission, a group, a subcommittee called the Ministry for the Future, whose task is to speak for future generations in, in the process of making decisions about how the world deals with these problems, and it follows the person who is tapped to lead that ministry. Um, but it also has, 
It has chapters where it lets blockchain speak for itself, which I found very confusing because I do not understand blockchain. Um, and I mean, I can't even tell you what I'm talking about exactly. I know it's, it's an economic something. <laughs> um, I think it's connected to cryptocurrency, but I'm not even really sure. I'm getting nods, so yeah, yeah. Um, But what's extraordinary about this novel is that it shows humanity coming together, or, and not sometimes, sometimes not coming together. Um, the Ministry for the Future's headquarters gets bombed at some point. You know, things happen. People are still being people the way we are people. And yet there's a way found through that to a place where carbon is being sequestered. Um, successfully and and over a decade they, they can see that things are getting better new modes of transportation um, new ways of handling the waves of immigrants that are just you know doing what they do um, those waves of immigration we're seeing that already um, and and people find their way gradually with a great deal of struggle into a world that can survive a world where we can survive and where the rest of the earth can survive. So it's a, it's a hugely hopeful novel. And I will warn you, if you start to read it, it starts in a really dreadful place. It's a, the, the, the crisis that sets up the novel is a horrible, horrible environmental crisis that, that is depicted. It's not, I'm sure it's not as graphic as it could be, but it was hard to read. So I'll just, I'll just warn you, the cost of, hu of human life and suffering in that crisis is huge. But it's an interesting window. It's an this, the novel is an imaginative window on what humanity might do. And it spins this story that is really hopeful, but without stretching far beyond what we, the, the capabilities we already have. You know, it doesn't posit any great save from outside. There are no aliens coming to tell us the secrets. Um, there's no huge new discovery of something. Um, it's just good hard work and being determined to solve problems and being determined to connect with each other in the solutions that, that are being found. So I recommend that. You may find hope in that book. Um, the other book that I read recently that I, I'm probably gonna be reading and rereading this one because again, I'm not sure I understood everything in it. Actually, I'm sure I did not. Um, but it's called Ways of Being, Animals, Plants, Machines, The Search for a Planetary Intelligence. Um, it's written by James Bridle. Now I need to back up because I didn't say the author of the novel I read. Her, um, that name is Kim Stanley Robinson. Um, so anyway, James Bridle, Ways of Being, Animals, Plants, Machines, and Intelligence. Uh, so this book was fascinating because it started with artificial intelligence, which is very much in the air these days. It's been on my radar for several months because I know someone who works kind of in artificial intelligence, and we've been having conversations for a while about it. Um, and now I've sort of, I've, I've, I've taken a turn at seeing if, if AI can write a sermon. I don't, not quite, <laughs> but really close enough to do it. I mean, 
I, I'm, um, I'm convinced AI can, especially the newest one that's just come out, um, it can write sermons that you wouldn't mind me giving you. I would mind giving them to you because they're just a little uh, canned, to be honest. But they're, they're not bad. And I think some of the problem with what I get is that I'm not so good at prompting yet. I'm still learning how to provide good prompts to the AI. So AI is happening. And there's this, um, I, come to, to, I came to this book with some suspicion about AI. I'm not quite, I really don't want to believe that it can replace us, even though when I said, can you write a sermon about this, and I read to my spouse what the sermon was, he said, I think we might both be out of jobs. <laughs> He's a researcher who writes reports. Um, and I'm, of course, a minister. So, um, so there's a little anxiety for me around AI. And there's excitement. I grew up with computers and um, my dad was a programmer early, early on. So I always thought they're fun, they're fascinating, it's amazing, they can do more and more things every year. Um, but Bridal does a really good job, I think, at, at getting a, a handle on what, what makes us kind of hesitate about that. Of course, you know, you know the, the popular culture kind of fears that, you know, what ends up in the movies is the AI will become more powerful than we will and will turn destructive on us and will, of course, resent how we treat it, you know. Um, and those are there. I don't, eh, I don't feel all that worried about that. And, and this book didn't go that way at all. But Bridal does say that something seems to be deeply amiss in what we imagine our tools are for. Uh, and he says that, that so many of what are new technologies, new advances that we make, um, for the most part, the new ones and the so-called intelligent ones are used to undermine and usurp human joy human security, and even human life itself. And this makes sense. We live in an extractive culture. We live in a capitalist culture. Um, but, but we sort of, it's very much a profit-driven culture. So new tools were paid for. They were developed by the people who have money. And the main interest in deploying them is to make more money. So what this book does is explores the idea of intelligence. It actually, after the first couple of chapters, doesn't talk about artificial intelligence much at all. It talks about different kinds of computers and different ways people have made computers to solve problems. Um, but he starts this, open, this question about you know, corporations. Really, our world is run by corporations, and corporations are not people. They don't have our priorities. They're about accumulating profit and wealth and influence. So he's suggesting that what's needed is that we change the way we think about the world. And, well, and he says, we need to chart a path towards a future which is less extractive, destructive, and unequal, and more just, kind, and regenerative which I really love. And what's really interesting, I mean, there's a whole lot in this book. I'm, it talks about slime mold and 
um, intelligence. And um, a lot of the, the uh, what we call the higher apes and their intelligence and the tests they've been given and how our tests are not quite smart enough to get at the ways that other beings are intelligent. Um, and, and he's seeing intelligence spread wide in the world. And he, he's borrowed a term from another scholar, um, the, the more than human world. And this whole book is a study of how do we become more connected with the more than human world? How do we care for the more than human world so that we don't die? <laughs> this is, it's kind of not an optional project. And I find a great, I find a great deal of hope in this, that all, all human life, this is a direct quote from Bridal, all human life is inextricably entangled with and suffused by everything else. He says over and over again, everything is hitched to everything else, everything in the world. So, and, and this is our experience. You know, you, you poke over here or you do this thing, it ends up having consequences that were unforeseen. And he says, well, that's because we think of things on one track you know, very linearly, and that's not the way reality is. In reality, everything is bouncing off of everything else. He has this, this vision of how things work, how the world is put together, that is very different from our technologically, intellectually driven kinds of models of culture and decision-making and problem-solving and governance. Um, so he's, he's introducing a world where what matters is in the in-between. It's not about me and whether I'm doing the right thing or whether I'm a good person or whether I'm not a good person or whether I am whatever. It's about what happens between us. What happens between this human community and the world around us, the human world around us, but the more than human world around us. And, and there's this vision of all sorts of things, every, everything about my life having impact all over with everything. But also, and this is where, this, this is hopeful too, everything else, all this other more than human stuff that surrounds us affects us too. We are not in fact all powerful beings totally wrong or totally right about making decisions because everything, everything all the time is bouncing off of us too. So we're here, we're here. And you can feel thrown around by that. You, can, you could probably, you, I'm sure, it would not be hard to feel despairing about that. But you can also feel really hopeful because there's a freedom in that. There is a, this is our home. Our intelligence and the intelligence of animals or rocks. He does. I always go to the rocks, and he actually did in one place. I wrote in my notes. Oh, he said rocks, <laughs> because nobody else ever does. I feel. <laughs> um, but they're part of the world we live in. So everything is connected. Everything is connected, and everything is bouncing off of each other. And the world is, in fact, if you want to you know, look at it the right way, it's, it's amazing and extraordinary and hopeful and all sorts of things can happen. And we have more options than we think we do. He talks a lot about um, 
interrelationship, and connectivity, and freedom of movement. Um, and he, he sees those as being really important. Our, as human beings, learning to be better connected, and also thinking about freedom of movement for ourselves and for other beings. Those are among the most vital faculties for weathering the coming storm. And that's, that, it, those are vital both for us and for the non-human parts of the world. He, he goes so far as to say life happens when everything is bouncing off everything else. And then he explores the idea of what non-human politics might mean. Like what does it mean if we allow and this is a little bit like the ministry for the future. What happens if we allow the voices of the future, or what we think they might say, into our current deliberations? Well, what happens if we allow the interests of non-human things, animals, for instance? And there are court cases where animals had, you know, were found to have standing in courts, and judges made rulings. And so he's thinking, well, what, what happens? How do we... What, what happens if we open that up? And does that give us tools for meeting climate change and the survival of not just other species, but our own species as well? Um, and he says, we can, we can do this. Um, we, we need to find our way to a willingness to adapt our existing structures. You know, our social structures, our, our ideas of thinking about land and place and how that, that is. Um, there's a theory, uh, I think it was E.O. Wilson who developed it, called the half-earth. Um, he doesn't discuss it thoroughly, and I haven't heard of it anywhere else, so I'm, um, that caveat aside. Um, half-earth is this, this idea that to prevent further extinction of species, we need, half of the space on the earth needs to be free of human presence. Like, not protected, like you can go visit and drive through it on a Sunday afternoon, but we don't go there. Um, and, and because we keep, we keep moving further and further into wild spaces, there are very few left, but that's what is causing extinction of species. And if we don't, like, stop and back up now, those extinctions will continue happening. But if we do, if we do figure out a way to share the earth with other people who, other people, other beings, I think of animals as people a lot of times. Um, if, if we can't share with other species who cannot tolerate our presence, we walk too hard, we make too much noise, we, you know, we're, we're just being human, but our being human impinges negatively on, on other species' um, ability to thrive or even survive sometimes. Um, so if we, but if we can pull back, there are possibilities, and we depend upon so many of the, we depend upon the whole rest of all the other species and how, the, how things work together and fit together. I know you understand that. Um, that's, in, that's our seventh principle, this interconnected web of everything that is. So he, he's arguing that if we can find ways for other species to have a voice in our deliberations, our problem solving and decision making processes, that the wider our democracy becomes, the more equitable our more than human commonwealth becomes. The rest of the earth has a stake in how we live together and whether or not this planet survives as a planet with life on it. 
or as a planet with human life on it. It's quite possible it could survive without us. So it's, it's an alternative tale of redemption, I think, that he's spinning for us here. And he also says we have to let go of our idea that knowing everything is what will save us. Because we kind of think, oh, if we're figuring a problem, we, we got to go. And I do this. We all do this. We're all trained to do this. We go, we go, and if we can just find enough knowledge, we can solve it. I'm, I'm thinking back over my life, and what I think I see is that we find more knowledge, and so then we make a decision, or we think we solve a problem, and then however long down the road, we find there was something else we didn't know, something we never imagined factored into the thing we were, you know, because part of solving a problem is you delineate, here's the problem, here's, here's what it is, and you, you just kind of block out a lot of stuff. Well, then it turns out, as you live into the new decision or the solution to the problem, that, oh, there are other things that impact how that lives out, and sometimes it, it doesn't work, or it works differently than you thought and causes other problems. So he says, uh, we need to be, we and our machines, the machines that help us think. And I do think the machines are going to help us think. I actually asked uh, GPT yesterday, how do I cultivate hope? How do, how do you practice hope? And it gave me actually a really nice list and some nice links to sources, of, you know, web pages I could go and read and study up on. Um, so our machines can help us think. Um, but we need to be, we and, and our, 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 the machines that we create um, need to be non-dual, you know, non-binary. And wait, did I write these down? I didn't write that down. I was going to bring my Kindle with me, <laughs> and I forgot. Forgot the machine. Um, Non-binary, non democratic, and something else that was really good. It was all very much in line with UU values. Um, but they need to, we need to be um, able to deal with complexity. Oh, unknowing. That was the other thing. Non-binary, democratic, and unknow unknowing. He goes back to Turing, and I don't know, anytime I've ever, Turing is like one of the guys who made the first computer or something like that. Um, and people in here are gonna know a lot more than I do about him. Um, but there was, in describing his computer, there's a moment where he says, well, and then O, which they think maybe means oracle, but it means then some randomness happens. And there's a whole chapter about how figuring out problems or solving things or running computer computations, computing things. There are moments when what is needed is input, random input. He talks about um, musicians who compose music that is never going to be the same twice because it calls for this thing that's determined by the whatever in the environment feeds in. So, so there's a, in, in real life, there is randomness. And our culture seems to think if you could just control all the randomness, then everything gets better. 
Turns out, we've been trying to do this for a long time, when you control all the randomness, you kill a lot of stuff. And it just, it's getting worse and worse. So part of this book is an argument for embracing randomness and hearing other voices, hearing voices we never thought we had to, to listen to, um, and, and recognizing non-human intelligence. It's just, it, it, it's, uh, a, we, are, we are not the everything. And yet, we are precious. He doesn't say that. I'm reading that into it. We're, we're a part of this more than human world. It's not, I don't get the sense he's talking humans versus everything else when he says the more than human world. Um, so he says, James Bridle says, our common future demands less industrial hubris and more cooperation with existing and deeply knowledgeable biological systems. Uh, and this sentence, I just love this. The world is a computer made out of crabs. He actually has a section where he talks about a crab computer. Somebody built a computer once to solve problems using crabs. Um, but the world is a computer made out of crabs, infinitely entangled at every level and singing full-throated the song of its own becoming. The only way forward is together. And he doesn't mean human beings together. He means the more than human world together. Um, and I think this is, this is an alternative vision of how we use technology. Um, so it's, it's about understanding and agency and the rest of the world gets a voice. And I, fi I find a great deal of hope in this. If there's a way we can get around the hubris of uh, being human <laughs> and solving problems and um, all the things we've done that have moved us closer and closer to extinction and moved many other beings into extinction or much closer, um, that's, a, that's a search. A search for intelligence of a, of a new kind, I think, that's worth considering. Also, I find hope in Unitarian Universalism. And, you know, we are Unitarian Universalists, so we need to go that, go that place, go to that place, go that route. Um, and one of the biggest of our, or one of the values that we have in common that, as you use, that I've been thinking about a lot lately is democracy. And um, I find hope in the idea of democracy. I don't think we're done with democracy in this country. A lot of people are starting to think that because the way we're doing it lately is not going very well. I think you've probably noticed. But I, I really think the problem is not that democracy doesn't work and we need a new system. I think it's that we're not doing democracy well. We have sold votes and sold power and sold influence to the highest bidder in many cases. And they are using that power and that influence not for the common good, but to amass more power, more influence, more wealth. Um, it's not even a matter of personal security anymore. It's just, it's, it's a self-feeding monster that just keeps going and going. Um, so, democracy, 
I think is a, it's a real it's a, it's a core Unitarian Universalist value, and I think we're moving into a place. You know, I think we talked last time I was here about how we're we're looking at our seven principles and thinking about if that's how we want to express our values again. But democracy is kind of floating up out of our new conversation about how to articulate our values. Um, and so, you know, the question: Do we still believe in democracy? Is open at the moment, and I, I hope we do. And I, I have this vision of UU bodies, UU spaces, being places and groups of people where we practice democracy, where we commit ourselves to including and welcoming all comers and hearing all the voices in the room and practice it. It's really hard. It's really hard to do democracy. Um, so I, I, I think, especially, I think in small congregations, we sometimes feel like we, um, we, we can't do as much about some of these really important things, but I think small congregations and practicing democracy there could be a, a thing that shifts our culture significantly. Um, I think democracy and justice are, are really tied closely together. I had a really good time yesterday afternoon. I logged into one of the presidential forums that the UUA is running, and I just I want to tell you about that a little bit, because so we have a, an election for the president of the UUA coming up at General Assembly in June, and usually we have two officially nominated candidates for president. This year we have only one, and that's because very late in the process of discerning who those two candidates would be this year, one of the candidates withdrew. Um, so, um, this is not a failure of democracy. There was a process and it was undertaken with fa in, fa in good faith. And there's also a, um, anybody who wants to be added to the ballot, um, you know, to self-nominate in effect, can do that. And no candidates like that came, you know, emerged this year. So we have just one candidate, which doesn't feel like a democracy. But if you go to one of these forums, there are, there's a forum being run every month between now and June, and um, it's kind of question and answer. Sophia Betancourt is our candidate for president. I've known her for a few years, not closely. She wouldn't know me, but I know her. You know, she, we've, you've probably seen her at some point if you've been watching General Assembly for the last few years. She served as the co-president for a, t a season when we lost our president several years ago. Um, she's an ethicist, or she said, oh, me and some of my colleagues now are coming up with this word theoethicist, eth which is not hard, not, not easy to say. But theology and ethics are not in, con you know, in conflict with each other. They go together, is what she's saying, she and her friends. Um, so, we have someone who's been deeply involved in justice movements, but also deeply involved in the intellectual traditions of Unitarian Universalism and the ethical and theological aspects of building a better world. Um, and she is also, um, she listens very carefully. And when she speaks, she's one of those people I always am going to listen to what she says. I find her always to be very wise. Um, and so the, the forums are a chance just to get to know her. But you can also ask questions. What I loved, 
yesterday, the forum was winding up, and she's like, well, I want to know who's got questions for me. And she answered questions. She took questions from the floor. Um, and, oh, and then she said, I have questions for you. And so she said, well, I want to know this. And people, and she said, and I want to hear from the parents of youth and young adults. So David, my, my spouse, I, he, our children are young adults now. One's in college, one's a little, couple years out now. Um, I said, well, so what do we want to ask, you know, what do, what do we want to tell? She said, what do you want? What do you want Unitarian Universalism to be for your young people? Um, and he said, well, we want them not to lose hope. He didn't know that that's the sermon I was working on. <laughs> he said, I want them not to lose hope, not to become cynical in the face of everything that is our lives right now. Um, so I put that in. And I almost didn't get it sent because the Zoom chat wasn't working the way it should have been. I finally got it through, and it was the very end. And she said, oh, my students ask me this all the time. And I tell them, hope is a discipline. Hope is a discipline. So it's not, it's not primarily a feeling. We might feel hopeful sometimes, but hope is, it's a choice. It's an intentionality to go and find the good in the world, to see what is good, to find the good in each other and in ourselves, and to act on it to make there be more good in the world. This is, well, hugely hopeful, I was gonna say. That's a little. Um, the other thing that's interesting about when Sophia talks, too, she always calls us to pay attention to the grief. That, you know, people ask her questions about dissenting voices in Unitarian Universalism right now. She says, we also we need to hold the grief. People do not recognize the church that they identified with, the religious tradition. With, you know, and the church could mean the community, but it could also mean the, religious, the wider religious tradition. With, you know, in which they've been embedded for decades sometimes. And we need to acknowledge that change happens. The world has changed around us. We have changed. Um, the, the people coming into our movement are different in lots and lots and lots of ways. Um, and, and so we have to acknowledge that, yes, it is, it is not what it was. And what it was may have been very, very good and it's not the same anymore. And still, we are called now to be, and this is my words, not hers, but we're called to be something new and different in the world. And um, we, we need to hold all of that. How do, we, how do we hold the grief? And we all carry grief all the time about lots of things, which I'm saying mostly, that's a, a sermon I need to hear. <laughs> You, you may not need to know that. You might know that. But I, I struggle with grief. But it's, it's always there. And it's, it's hard to say, yes, that is, that's an important, that, that is important. It says something about what we value and what moves us and what hurts us. Um, and grief is about things that are lost. So we can't, we can't always fix that. But how can we turn that energy and fold it into the hopeful energy? 
and go somewhere else and be in a world that is more inclusive, more just, that pays attention to the needs of others and not just others who are like us. Whether like us is well-educated middle class or whether like us is human or whether like us is animals. One of my favorite parts of Bridal's book, he says it, they taught spinach to send emails. <laughs> Which, okay, he said then what it was is they bred the spinach to turn, uh, turn to change color. And I'm, I'm ending here. Um, to change color in the presence of some chemical that leaks, leaches out of landmines. And then they set up cameras connected to computers to watch the color of the spinach and notice when it when and where it changed color, so they could find these are you know this is uh, central Eurasia where there's lots and lots of land that's just been devastated by war, um, but the spinach finds landmines and sends emails with their locations. This is a good thing. This is a good thing. Paying better attention to the more than human world will be a good thing for us. It will, I think, in fact, make us more human. And it also makes the whole world much more beautiful, much more full of wonder and joy and companionship. So it's not all grim, even when it's very grim. It, it is both. Something, something did go wrong. Something did. And, and practicing hope means we're going to look for ways to help things go better. May it be so. <laughs>